let me pray for us and then and commit this time to the Lord, and then we can begin. Father, we would ask that in uh, in this time that we have tonight, just like in all of our other um, talks through this series and our evening gatherings, that you would give us clarity and discernment, that you would give us wisdom, um, that you would help us be able to rightly distinguish between um, those things that are um, non-negotiables, um, that we are compelled um, to uphold and um, uh, actions that we are obligated to take um, because not to do so would be to disobey you and then also to be able to distinguish between the non-negotiables and the non-essentials. Um, those things where there is perhaps a measure of freedom, um, if not flexibility, uh, from one Christian to another or from one circumstance to another in terms of how we interact um, with the world around us. We want to, in, uh, in short, be able to strike that healthy balance that we see in Scripture. We want to be um, in the world but not of it. Um, we want to recognize that um, this place is not our home, that we are citizens of a kingdom to come and of a city that we are waiting um, to receive and uh, to, to bear witness to that truth and to the grace of God that has been made evident in the work of Jesus Christ. So give us uh, wisdom and understanding tonight, we ask. We, uh, we ask that this time would be profitable and edifying. In Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen. Okay, uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and give, uh, once again, uh, the disclaimer up front, or not, uh, disclaimer is not the right word. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and set your expectations very low, all right, and, do, and uh, to do that uh, by way of saying that if the, um, if the question that you, that you bring to the text or that you bring to the scriptures as it pertains uh, Christian, uh, a Christian, uh, Christian engagement in the free market or uh, commercial enterprises for the Christian, and you're looking for um, a very finely detailed sort of manifesto uh, that Christians are to adhere to or uphold, I think, you, I think you're going to end up coming away a bit frustrated. You're gonna, you probably will want the scriptures to say more than what I think they do. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to try to um, try to walk through and show some passages that I think are um, are relevant or that perhaps set uh, parameters for us to to move within, albeit not with um, a, a very detailed step by step. Here's where you go, here's where you go, and here's what you do, or here's where you can't go, and here's what you you can't do. Um, in part, let me also say up front that one of the things that makes a question like this very difficult, how should Christians engage with businesses um, that for all intents and purposes uh, seem to be, uh, whether it's anti-God or uh, anti-Christian, or perhaps it's not even as well thought out as that. Maybe it's just this, is, this business just sort of reflects the corruption that's going on in society in general. Um, they don't necessarily um, care, you know, two bits about whether or not they're offending Christians or non-Christians. They're just doing what they want to do. All right, in, in the midst of all this, the, the challenge that, that I think one of the um, probably underappreciated, even though intellectually I think we recognize this and we would give lip service to it, um, but it, it, it is a little bit harder when we get to the issue of applying the scriptures, is that there is some, some measure or a significant disconnect between the New Testament context, social context, and our social context today. Namely, that the advantages that we have or the opportunities that we have, uh, both commercially and politically, in a free market economy, and in a democratic republic are concepts or are um, conditions that would have been um, not just simply foreign to people in the New Testament, but would have been unimaginable, right? I mean, just the world just did not operate that way. And there really was, was nothing like what we have today for Christians in the first century. And so to expect then, in, uh, in many ways, to expect that a first century letter 
written to people who are under the, the rule of an imperial power, um, at times even dictatorial, that that's going to give us a one-to-one -one correlation with a democratic republic. Or, um, you know, the tributes and the tax system will have a one-to-one -one correlation with the graded tax system that we have today. I think is expecting the scriptures to say too much. All right. But, that being said, it, that's not to say that as we look in the scriptures, there aren't relevant passages that we can turn to, that we can reflect on, meditate on, think on, and use that to sort of shape the way that we then begin to view the world around us or even think about the way that we engage the world as we encounter it in our day-to-day -day affairs. So let me, let me start with what um, sort of... Uh, what would seem to be a little bit more clear-cut, um, maybe even a little further afield than some of the things that, that we might have in mind right now, and then, and then move from, from out sort of on the fringe to trying to get m closer into the points that we wrestle with today, okay? So um, I guess what, what I have in mind, and I, and I assume what you have in mind, once again, want to make sure that we're all sort of on the same page, is, um, you know, when, uh, uh, when a company like Starbucks uh, prints on their, uh, their cups, happy holidays, but not Merry Christmas, what, what do Christians do with that? Do we, do we boycott Starbucks? Right? Some, some people would say yes. I mean, you've probably seen it, all right? Other people will say, well, that's a bit of an overreaction. I don't think we need to, you know, lose our heads over this. Okay, well, what do you do with the recent um, developments that have happened with Disney and with Target, right? When they begin to um, promote tran transgenderism, and thinking of the, the recent episode with Target, but to promote it in such a way that they're actually promoting it, targeting um, in terms of clothing and apparel, um, minors and children, all right? That seems to be something of a different scale or on a different, in a, on a different level or in a different arena than, say, happy holiday cups at Starbucks, right? So, th so even there, there's sort of a spectrum that we're trying to analyze and discern. How do we respond to this? How do we think about that? And so on and so forth. And so I'm going to start sort of broad, maybe apples and oranges, and then try to move further and further in to get a little bit closer to the issues that we're wrestling with today. Although, I'll say again up front, I don't know that we are going to be able to find a chapter and verse or a text of Scripture that says, here is exactly how you do it 10 times out of 10, regardless of what comes down the pike. All right, so we're going to do this. We're going to start with, uh, with a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 22, and then um, look at a similar statement that Paul makes in Romans 13. So start in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. That is, trap Jesus in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. All right, go from Matthew 22 to Romans 13, and start with me, I think it's at verse 5. I tell you what, let's back up just a little bit. Let's say, okay, let's actually start at 13.1. Every person, Paul says, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they, have, uh, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of, uh, to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. 
But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. All right, now, it, although there are slightly different issues at, at play here or different, um, different thoughts that are brought out, what both Jesus and Paul have in common in Matthew 22 and in Romans 13 is that both of them say that Christians or that Jesus followers, Jesus disciples, ought to pay taxes. All right. Now, I understand paying our taxes is not first and foremost what, what we're concerned with here. But the reason that I think this is relevant and at least ought to be considered is because of the fact that one of the differences, if we go from our setting now to the first century setting in which Jesus and Paul and the early church would have found themselves in, is that uh, whereas they would not have been able to understand or appreciate things like a free market economy or uh, a democratic republic, we have very little appreciation, especially as Americans, for the lack of separation between church and state in the first century. By that we mean that um, one of the things that we ought to consider when Jesus and Paul say that, that Christians are obligated to pay taxes to the government, which at that time was the Roman government, is that there probably would have, um, not just probably, I think it's, it's almost certain, that um, two things would have been recognized um, in the paying of those taxes. Number one, that of course, in paying taxes to the Roman government, you're supporting, right, the, the governing authority, or you're, suppo you're supporting in some shape or form the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire at the time is going to be infamous from a Christian perspective, uh, and, and even more so from a Jewish Christian perspective for at least two things. Number one, the Roman Empire is infamous because of the fact that they are ruling and occupying as a foreign power over God's people. They view them as a, uh, a, a pagan, authoritarian, um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Not irrelevant. Uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Uh, someone, that ne someone that needs to be the, the authority and the power that Rome has over the, uh, the Jewish people needs to be thrown off. And so if you are encouraging your followers to continue to pay the tax to Rome, one of the things that you, are, that you have to wrestle with is the fact that in some shape or form, by paying the tax, you are supporting the means by which Rome is exerting her authority over your homeland and ruling over you and your people. Closely connected with that is not just the, um, the civic or the political issue of authority and the occupation that goes on here, but the fact that without a, um, a doctrine of separation of church and state, there was no such thing. And the Romans, along with all the other, so many of the people in the Greco-Roman world at the time, were, um, were not irreligious, they were uber-religious in the sense that they would worship any and every god that you could throw their way. They had their pantheon, right, their, their collection of gods that they, that they worshiped, that they honored and revered, but they didn't mind if you brought in your local gods and sort of mixed it in just so long as everyone sort of, you know, kept a good open mind about everything. But because you're going to pay taxes to the Roman government, not only are you going to be supporting the, um, the military force that uh, ex executes its will over you, you're also more than likely going to be supporting, in some degree, the pagan religious worship, worship um, pagan religious exercises that go on and their acts of worship, which would have been abhorrent to Jewish, uh, to Jewish people, Jew, uh, uh, people from Judaism along with uh, Jewish Christians, to say the least. In either case, though, both Jesus and Paul say, in spite of the fact that they will take your money and use it for even evil and wicked things, you are obligated to pay taxes, therefore pay taxes. One of the things that, that is interesting, especially when you look at what Paul says in Romans 13, 
is that Paul says, here's what government ought to be doing, or here's the function or the purpose of government. That it is, um, it is that government is designated or is installed by God to um, reward the good and to punish evil. He says that under Roman rule. He, Paul, says that as a man who will be executed at the hands of the Romans. When Paul describes what government ought to be in Romans 13, is he oblivious to the way that government actually is in his day? Certainly not. Paul knows better than anyone what the government and the governing authorities, both in Rome and more locally, are like. And yet, both Paul and Jesus say you ought to pay taxes. Last thing I'll say about this. Not only is it interesting that they say you ought to pay taxes, I think one of the, re- one of the things that is helpful for us in our particular day and age to take note of in these two passages is that knowing, because Jesus and Paul would have, would have been fully aware of what the Roman, um, the Roman authorities were like, what they did, their pagan practices, It is interesting that Jesus and Paul tell the Christian to pay their taxes without insinuating or even suggesting that they will be held accountable for the way that the Roman government uses their money. Do you follow? So you pay your taxes the way that you're supposed to, the way that you are bound by law, but there does not seem to be any sense or any suspicion that by Jesus telling his followers to pay their taxes, that they in some way will be implicated in the pagan practices or the abuses of the Roman Empire, which they will be supporting by the payment of taxes to the Roman authorities. All right, so at the very least then, what I think one of the things that we might want to consider is that by virtue of an exchange of money, in and of itself, the exchange of money does not necessarily, I'm not gonna say never, okay, but does not necessarily implicate the Christian on everything that the merchant then does with that money, okay? All right, so, so let me pause here. So, next passage. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter five. So at the risk of being repetitious, as I look at Matthew 22 and Romans 13, one of the things that that I take away in terms of a general point of application would be that it is possible for the Christian to consider that their payment of money, whether it be to governing authorities or possibly in our context here to uh, commercial enterprises, in and of itself does not implicate us in the sinful activities or behaviors that that merchant or commercial enterprise would then go on to engage in themselves. It's, it's possible. It at least ha- that possibility has to be held out there. 1 Corinthians 5, look at verse 9. Pick up with me at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves." Now, this is in the context of the, uh, of the immoral brother who's engaged in known, blatant sexual immorality, has not repented of it, and the church at Corinth has not pressed on this brother to repent of that sin such that they would even put him out. So, so Paul is coming back and is saying, listen, your, your views or your perspective on all of this is skewed. They, they sort of have things upended. One of the things that goes on here in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and following is that Paul seems to allow for the fact or acknowledge the fact that because of Christians living in a broken and sinful world, it's inevitable that we're going to be, at the very least, rubbing shoulders with immoral people, if not 
having some sort of engagement with immoral people. Right? So you may not have, if you yourself are a merchant or a business owner, you yourself may not have the luxury of being able to decide or determine that the only people that you're going to do business with or enter into business arrangements with are gonna share your, um, your convictions or share your persuasions when it comes to standards of morality and ethics. In one sense, it's not that your morality, your ethics, your convictions concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment are irrelevant, right? But I think it, it is more to the point that for, from Paul's perspective here that those expectations have to be tempered in some way when you step from the church to outside of the church. We ought to be much more insistent and expect much more from what we see or the attitudes or um, the viewpoints, uh, what we promote, what we discourage, when we're talking about our brothers and sisters within the church because we are submitting to the lordship of Christ, we ought to be far more concerned with what we're seeing going on in the church, I think Paul would say, than oftentimes what we would see going on outside of the church. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we don't care what's happening out there. But I think what Paul is saying here is that there is a level of influence that the Christian ought to bring to bear on the way that life is conducted within the church that does not necessarily carry the same kind of weight or expectations with the way that life is conducted outside of the church. Therefore, I would expect that my brother or sister at Edgewood share certain non-negotiable convictions with me about, say, sexual morality. I don't expect the barista at Starbucks or the clerk at the grocery store to share those same convictions. They're not part of the church. Does that mean that I don't care about the fact that they don't share those convictions? Not at all. Right? To the extent that I recognize that they are outside of the people of God, or more to the point, outside the people of God because they're outside of Christ, my heart's desire is for them to turn from their sin and to find forgiveness in Christ and to have their minds renewed and purified so that they would come to love righteousness and hate wickedness. But I ought not to expect that those who are outside of Christ are going to live or have the same sensibilities that we have when we are inside of Christ. So that's 1 Corinthians 5. Go to Romans 14. And here's where we start to get in, I think, a little bit more closer to the issue at hand with what do we do then in these... Did I give you a reference? Yes, Romans... Okay, Romans 14. Sorry, I was turning the wrong direction. I thought maybe I had missed something. Romans 14. I think this is um, where we begin to push in a little bit more closely and can make closer application to these questions when we get to Romans 14. So let's see, let's, uh, let's start at verse one. Romans 14, one. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. This, I think, is a critical passage by way of application to the questions and concerns of our day because in the absence of any clear direction that we would receive through the Scriptures, so far as it appears that the matter of where we shop, where we do business, do we boycott, do we not boycott, because the Scriptures have not spoken clearly or because the Lord has not spoken clearly in the Scriptures on matters of that specificity, I think in many ways, almost always, it's going to come down to a matter of conscience. And if it comes down to a matter of conscience then, that means that as Christian brothers and sisters, we have to allow for the fact, or we have to recognize the fact, that while we all acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and want to serve Him, we will serve Him in uniquely different ways or we will carry out our discipleship to Christ in ways that look slightly different from one circumstance to the next or from one setting to the next. So, if, as a result of this store um, having holiday cups instead of Merry Christmas, if I have a Christian brother or sister who says, well, I will never go into that store again until they start saying Merry Christmas because they're taking Christ out of Christmas, Okay, right? I, I can let them do that if, if they think that, that that is the best way for them to express their devotion to the Lord and to follow Christ in obedience. Okay, that's fine. The danger becomes or the difficulty becomes when one of two things happens. Either when I, who continue to frequent that place, right, because I don't share that conviction, the danger comes in when I begin to look at, at my brother or sister who's not going to this place, they're objecting on some sort of principled ground, and I begin to look down my nose at them, right, as being small-minded, as being petty. Or the danger works the other way. The person who, is, uh, who will no longer frequent that business anymore sees me going into that business or that shop and judges me because my sensibilities are not like their sensibilities, where the scriptures are silent, and assume that I must not be as serious about my walk with the Lord as what they are, because if I were, I wouldn't be going into that establishment. At the end of the day, Paul says, where there is freedom, genuine freedom to choose, each person must settle this matter in their conscience as they stand before the Lord. And so long as they are settling this matter in their conscience with the Lord, the Lord is the one who causes them to stand, right? I, I think that's part of the, part of the significance of, or part of the meaning of what Paul means in verse 4 when he says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Right? In other words, even if you disagree with the approach that they're taking, so long as they are not disobeying the Lord or violating the leading or direction that the Lord has given them, it really makes no difference what I think or what you think about me. They stand or fall before the Lord. And so long as they are responding in humble obedience to the dictates of their conscience as the Lord has led them, the Lord will cause them to stand, even if where they stand is not exactly where I would stand. And so he comes down a little bit further. I think this is in verse 22. And he says, the faith which you have, has, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So whatever your conviction is, if you think that you can shop here, right, without going against, without breaking, without 
violating, disobeying a clear command or a clear instruction in God's word or a well-established pattern or principle, right? Not everything needs to be as explicit as thou shalt not shop at such and such a place, right? There are also then patterned teachings and principles that we can draw. But so long as there is not a clear indication either explicitly or implicitly in the scripture, have your own conviction before the Lord and conduct yourself accordingly. The last thing then that we'll say, and then I'll pause, and if you want to jump in with, with uh, questions or comments or corrections or rebuke or ridicule or retribution, you can do what you will. Turn with me from Romans over to Ephesians chapter 5. Start with me at verse 3, Ephesians 5, 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If we go from Romans 14 to Ephesians 5, if we're going from a matter of conscience in Romans 14, where the, where the Lord has not spoken clearly, directly or clearly in his word, we ought to approach the Lord with humility and see how he may lead or guide or direct us in unique circumstances. We ought to commit our conscience to the Lord and then conduct ourselves accordingly. The check on that operating according to your conscience is when you come to Ephesians 5, and whatever you may want to say about your conscience, what is clearly placed as a boundary line or a fence line is, you cannot become a participant with them in darkness. Okay? So there is a point in time, it would seem at which we have to ask questions as to whether or not my involvement or my participation is providing direct support to a particular kind of evil or a particular kind of sin. And if there is a direct, immediate one-to-one -one correlation or connection between my participation with, say, a business or a commercial enterprise or another person that links me directly with their sin, at that point, I think the Christian would be obligated to say, I have to step back from this, I, I, I cannot do that, right? Because it's lending direct material support to what's going on here. So, let me pause there. That just sort of probably throws enough chum in the water to get everyone in a feeding frenzy. All right, so, questions or comments? Okay, good place to start. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and yes, and, and that's, the, that's the other side of it. The, Paul is exactly right. Precisely because the New Testament um, context would not have had any concept of the, the, the free market that we have today, right? You, Okay, their, what, their bounds or their, or their restrictions are 
totally foreign to what we have today, but precisely because we have far more freedom than what they did. It's sort of like what Paul says uh, in Galatians 5, if we were to take it as a general point of application, right? It was for freedom that Christ set us free, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, right? But through love, serve one another. So yes, absolutely. Let's, let's say, for example, we, you know, we have several Starbucks, for example. I'm not picking on, trying to pick on Starbucks, but it, you know, the holiday cups is what came out. I know, right? I've, I've bought stuff from Starbucks, right? I'm, I won't say who, but people in my family frequent Starbucks oftentimes and, you know, as special treats and stuff like that. Right, but, it, but listen, but here's what we were getting to. It was coming to this. But if there would be, say, another coffee establishment in Columbus, Georgia, right, who served fantastic coffee along with all kinds of food and stuff like that, and they had godly ownership, they shared similar convictions, so on and so forth, why would I not go to that establishment and support that business with my money so that they, in turn, can continue to do what they do, right? So, yes, that, so that's the flip side. Paul makes an excellent point. On the one hand, there is not, I don't think, there is, not, there is no biblical obligation to say, thou shalt not step foot in such and such an establishment, right? But by the same token, we should be very eager as Christians, I think, to use the free market in ways that do give us the ability to breathe a little easier, right? To relax and rest a little bit and not to be so amped up in terms of how much of what I'm doing right now is contributing to the mess that we see going on in the world around us. Am I unwittingly or you know, unknowingly promoting this, that, or the other? Once again, I would say that the Christian is not necessarily promoting or advancing this insanity or that insanity when they go and they buy a gallon of milk from Target. All right. That being said, though, if there's another place to shop and I can do it there and I don't even have to give a second thought to it, I'll probably go to the place where I don't have to give a second thought to it. Because who wants another issue that they have to think about? Does that sound real lazy? Who wants to keep thinking? <laughs> All right, uh, Sean. Yeah, question is, what, um, what about investing in, in the stocks of companies that don't share Christian convictions or Christian values and stuff. And on, on that point, I would, I personally, I would say I think it's very similar to the idea of going into a storefront, right? It's an exchange of money, it's an exchange of goods. You're using your money to purchase an item or to get a good from this merchant. In a similar way, your exchange of goods or money or resources investing in this stock has to be weighed the same way, right? Um, if you have the opportunity to invest well in companies that are more aligned with your convictions where you don't have to worry about the water being muddy and murky and stuff like that, I, you know, by all means, do it that way. But at the same time, I think if the criteria for the Christian is I can only invest in companies that are going to tick off 100 out of 100 boxes of you know, personal convictions and doctrinal beliefs, I don't know that you'll ever be able to do anything in the financial market, right? We're just, this is the reality of living in a, in a, broken, in a broken world. In a, well, not, not a, sorry, that's putting it too mildly. This is the reality of living in a sin-filled world, right? Not just broken, sin-filled. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally understand that. And let me, um, Jamie talking about this reminded me, if, um, turn, uh, turn back over to 1 Corinthians, uh, let's see. Actually, we did not look at that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm sorry, not 8, chapter 10. All right, now, we'll read a section out of 1 Corinthians 10 here where Paul is dealing with the issue of, um, of meat sacrificed to idols and of dining in an idol temple. I think there, there, are, there are maybe two things that Paul is addressing here, and it's not as simple as just the meat issue, but, even, uh, but, it, but it is both what you eat and where it's being eaten. So in one sense, you could read what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10, and you could say, oh, this is very sophisticated, right? Yes, we want to have razor-sharp thinking like Paul does. Or you could read what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, you could say, well, this is just madness. Paul's trying to have his cake and eat it too. 
and you can't do that. So look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. Start with me at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, uh, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of the blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Now, just pause here for a second, all right? Once again, it seems that where Paul lays the stress is, at what point do you go into the category of sharer, participator, partaker in the evil or the sin or the wickedness? All right? So you can't go and eat with them in this temple because even though you know that an idol is nothing, they don't know that. And more to the point, what they don't know, you do know that there is something that lies behind that idolatrous practice and worship, and you can't participate in that, whether they recognize it or not. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? And then look at what he says in verse 23 and following. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. By the way, I don't think that's Paul's perspective on life. I think he's parroting the Corinthian perspective they're so spiritual and they're so above it all that everything is lawful for them. And Paul is having to come back and push back and say, well, I, I don't really think your Christian liberty is calibrated in exactly the right way. All right, just a little aside there. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat was sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when you go over to an unbeliever's house and you sit down to eat, just eat whatever they put in front of you. Don't ask any questions. But if they tell you, now we're going to be eating meat that was just offered to Apollo or Athena earlier today, and then they give you a real hard stare, right? Then you say, well, maybe I'll just have a salad tonight, right? Once again, the, mo the, the knowledge involved, the motivation even involved, makes a huge difference in what a Christian can and cannot do or what a Christian should or should not do. So, in some respects, it may actually be the better path of wisdom when I go into the grocery store to buy a box of cereal for the kids, not to spend an hour online before I go to the grocery store trying to find out who's the most Christian cereal maker. Maybe I just wanna go buy cereal for my kids and so I go, and just like meat being set down in front of me, here is cereal put out in front of me, I'll buy that, I'll take it home, and with a clean and clear conscience, me and my kids will sit down and have a bowl of cereal, and we'll enjoy it. But if Arnett here, raising his hand, looking to make trouble, brings over to my house Count Dracula, Choco Bits, or whatever the cereal is, and says, here, have this, what will the pastor do? Maybe I say, we're a Cheerios house here. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. So once again, looking for someone that we can enthusiastically support rather than vehemently object to or stiff arm. Yeah, all, yeah, all fine and good. The, the, the place where that starts to become, I think, where it starts to get complicated is when, you're, when you are in the marketplace and you need a kind of service that requires a certain kind of expertise, right? Because let's face it, if my kid is sick, or let's say, let's, let's lower, lower the urgency. If my kid has a broken leg, right, and the leg needs to be set or needs to be put in a, in a cast, I'm more concerned when I go to the doctor about whether or not that doctor knows how to set a leg well than whether or not he knows how to set a leg as he's praying, all right? I don't know if that sounds very irreligious or unchristian of me or anything like that, but when you get to areas where you need a certain kind of expertise and precision, once again, I, th I think that's where wisdom comes in, and I think that's where freedom, um, our, our freedom of conscience comes in as well, that, that we are not being implicated in the sins of others so long as the service that we are requiring or, uh, or purchasing from them is itself not sinful, right? And so the, the concern I think that we want, or the thing that we want to guard against is the notion that we put a guilt trip on our brothers and sisters so as to say that if you go to this place or that place, well, you're just as guilty in promoting this philosophy or this lifestyle as the people who are actively engaged in it because you gave them your money. I just don't know that that's necessarily a right biblical way to look at that, although I quickly turn around and say, 100% agree, the better alternative would be to say, with joy and with complete freedom, you know, find places that you can enthusiastically support and then go do that. Let me throw in one other thing. Someone, uh, Ray had a hand up, and I'll, I'll go to Ray in just a sec. I, I'm sorry, no, let me go to Ray because you've been waiting. Yeah, Ray makes a really, Ray makes a really good point. Um, you know, the, the, even the unique challenge that comes in considering um, who you're with when it comes to, say, for example, children. So if you're going into a store, if you yourself as an adult were going into a store to make a simple purchase and then go out, okay, that's one thing. But if I'm entering into a store, let's say, with my young children, and by going into that store, they're going to see things or be exposed to things that I don't really think they're ready to be exposed to. Well, then I probably won't go into that store when I have them with me. Although I may go into that store later on in the day if I'm by myself. Does that make me hypocritical? I don't think so. I think it, I think it just makes me, hopefully, wise, right? And discerning, especially for the weaker ones among us. I don't want to do anything that would cause someone who is weaker either in the faith or perhaps not even yet in the faith to stumble unnecessarily. And so I will inconvenience myself. Yes, it's on the way right now, but I would have to take Junior in with me and I just don't, he just does not need to see all this insanity. So I'll go at a less convenient time for his sake, not for my sake, and be done with it that way, all right? Let me, let me say one other thing. The, another thing to keep in mind, and we'll, we'll start to wrap up here. Another thing to keep in mind, when it comes to, to um, serving the Lord with a, with a free conscience, all right? I'm sorry, let me say two things. Number one, be very careful. This is a whole nother discussion in and of itself, but be very careful that the, the conscience clause that Paul gives in Romans 14 is not reduced to the lowest common denominator, which is, which is essentially to say that as long as I think it's okay, it must be okay, right? I mean, there is a reason why God has put us in a body and he gives us the opportunity to seek the advice and counsel of other people. There is a reason that we go to the Word and our minds are renewed and even changed and convicted over positions that we one, at one time may have held loosely but now find that that is not necessarily maybe the healthiest position for me to hold right now. I think I ought to move over in this direction. So merely because your conscience is not offended by this in and of itself does not necessarily mean 
that you're, that you're in the clear, right? Still, ultimately, your conscience has to be submitted to the lordship of Christ. The second thing, the second thing that I would say is when you do, though, act or live according to your conscience, be very careful that you don't then begin to fall into, now this is part of what Paul warns against in Romans 14 about looking down our noses at other people or judging uh, the other. Be very careful that you also don't do what, um, what Jesus warns against in Matthew 6, which is practicing your righteousness in front of others, or more specifically, practicing your righteousness to be seen by others, right? So it is entirely possible, I, would, I, would, I suspect, that you could allow the freedom of disagreement you know, on a particular issue between your, your brother or sister on this point or on that point. I'll go to the store, but they won't go to that store. Okay, I'm, I'm, you know, that, that's fine. They, they answer before the Lord. But then while I allow them to, to exercise the dictates of their conscience, I sort of make a point to let them know every time I do go to the store or every time I don't go to the store, right? Because I want them to know how fastidious I am when it comes to my convictions. I want them to know how serious I am about my walk with the Lord. In which case, you then have to, have to begin to ask, well, these convictions that you're living by, are you living these convictions out for the Lord? Or are you living these convictions out because of the appearance or the status that it gives you in the eyes of other people? Right? There's something a little bit off-putting, in other words, when people want to announce all the time what they're doing or what they're not doing because of their Christian convictions. At a certain point, you begin to wonder, who are you talking to? And for what purpose are you talking to these people? Are, are you trying to persuade or are you just trying to promote, self-promote, right? You, you get what we're saying? So, it, so one of the ways that we can do this perhaps in a very healthy way is to do it in a very quiet way. If the Lord has convicted you to take approach A, take approach A and just be done with it, right? You don't need to announce it on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter, right? The faith that you have before the Lord, have it before the Lord. If the Lord convicts you the other way, you don't need to announce it to everybody that you've come to this dramatic conclusion and that this is my conviction and everybody is entitled to know it. Why? It's not for them. It's your conviction before the Lord. Keep it there. Okay? We're a little bit over. And I'm afraid that if I continue to let this go on, that I won't get out of here fully intact. So I'm going to pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for an opportunity to think through the scriptures and to try to rightly bring them to bear on our current situation in this particular day and age, in this cultural moment. We recognize and we acknowledge that not everything that we encounter is specifically described um, in your word. Um, that doesn't mean that your word can't be brought to bear on the way that we think about these things. But we do want to be very cautious not to um, suggest that you have spoken in ways that you haven't, nor do we want to imply or suggest that you have not spoken in ways that would have a direct bearing on the way that we conduct our business or the way that we conduct our day-to-day -day affairs. So, Father, give us wisdom, please, and give us humility, um, even as we seek your wisdom and as we wait for it. Help us to be lights in the midst of a dark world, but help us to do so with humility and grace and with great joy. Give us, Father, we ask, a greater confidence and desire in our relationship and union with Christ than we would have with any other relationship or demonstration that for the outside watching world. Let that be what fuels us and drives us, the, uh, the affirmation and the pleasure of our Master and King. We pray this in your name. Amen.